0: Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to make sure you're aware of something cool that Vagrant's doing. Vagrant has 26 years on the street anniversary shows coming up. On May 28th at the Five Point Amphitheater in Irvine, California, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional, Alkaline Trio, Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, and The Anniversary. And on June 11th at the Palladium Outdoors in Worcester, Massachusetts, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional. Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, The Anniversary, and Monine. For tickets and more info, go to vagrant.com.
1: Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of The Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 years on the streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. This episode, we talk with two people who were behind the scenes at Vagrant, Kevin Kusatsu and Amy fleischer Madden. As I said in the first episode of this podcast, there's no way to say enough about what Kevin Kusatsu brought to Vagrant in the early days. He was a wonderkind at 18 when we first met him and a really big part of the reason that we decided to take a chance on Vagrant in the first place. I spoke to Kevin about that time. Oh, and as always, the other voice you'll hear in this conversation is super producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon. So we're going we're gonna to go into the Wayback Machine and talk about the past. <laughs> when did you first start becoming aware of Vagrant, and then working with Vagrant. And how did that kind of come up? And was it just Rich at the time, or was Cohen already already involved? Wasn't it just Rich to begin with? Tell me your Vagrant origin story.
0: <laughs> so Rich managed face-to-face. I went on tour with a band that opened for face-to-face. I ended up getting, it. there's a band called The Hippos. And let's see, so I don't know, something other, other some basically i met someone my parents had like a had like had like a dinner party and i just got home from tour and there's someone there it was they were hosting a birthday party for a woman named molly that's exactly it it was molly's birthday maybe like her 25th birthday or 30th birthday something like that there's this woman a friend of molly she was there she was like what do you do And i was like oh I, i like work with this band we just got back on from tour with this band called face the face she's like i know the manager so what do you want to do? i was like, well, I'd like to stay on tour, like be a tour manager. i like, hi, well, I'll introduce you. Maybe you can do an internship. So I just kind of figured like I was going to go there and sort of intern, right? I think I was, I might've just turned 18. Yeah, I just thought that, you know, I get in there, they're on an office, um, which is in Santa Monica on Pico and Lincoln, which it was across the street from a halfway house. Like a like a it was pretty much like an intravenous drug rehabilitation center or halfway house, right? So it was like, this is that it was a, there was a, there was a two story kind of duplex office with a overhang for like three cars, three or four cars to park in. So there's this homeless, there were a bunch of homeless dudes. That, this is like 20 years ago, but they used to like camp out in our parking spots. So I used to have to get there early and like kind of ask them and go, you know, and like figure out, negotiate space with them. But like, I'm trying to, anyways, I get there. You walk up these stairs. It's like maybe three offices and like a rooftop thing. To the right is a guy who. Had, this is the beginning. This is still dial-up, right? So this guy was like sort of. I think he was redirecting pornography websites or like paraphernalia. He was doing something in sex and online, right? With like at the at the vagrant office. No, no, because they had a shared office. It was like a.
1: Oh. Okay. There were
0: like three rooms. This guy was one of them, and then Rich and John had one, and then no, the internet guy had two, and then Rich and John had one. Eventually they took over all the space. So it was Rich originally. I met I go meet with Rich and uh and Cohen was his partner. And the way I understand it is that Cohen, Rich had convinced Cohen to invest money in the Vagrant. And they made like a seven-inch box set, and some other stuff. But basically what happened was in order for Cohen to get his realize his investment, he had to start working there. <laughs> So that is always the way I understood it. So I think Cohen was sort of always reluctantly, or in the beginning, reluctantly, you know, Rich's partner and he dealt with all the sales and distribution, all that stuff. And and Cohen was also doing like, you know, it's so like the Wayback Machine, right? I guess Cohen and Rich, when I met them, they must've been
1: 27, 28. I'm still not entirely clear how those two ended up together. <laughs> They're so different, you know, like, it's just so interesting but i think
0: those two ended up together from on some LA native stuff because they're both from here and um, i they're both i think they i think that's kind of how they knew each other right like you know the same social circle stuff like that
1: right right so you thought you were going to go like in like work with the management company with face to faces management and like to start touring like more with other bands and and that kind of stuff
0: yeah i thought that i thought i just figured I'll, I'll become a tour manager. I'll become a really good tour manager. Like go on the road, right? And I was like selling merch and out all that stuff. And then I go meet Rich and he's like, yeah, I have this management company for your tour. And I also have a label. Um, and he had the label, Vagrant was the label. And he was just like, yeah, we do, I don't know. They did like, I, at the, it was just CDs, right? There was like a bunch of seven inches, a few compilations. And I think when I got there, they were marketing sort of a face-to-face live album and a compilation and I think they had had a good run with a comp called "Before You Were Punk," which was '80s new wave pop punk covers of '80s new wave, if I remember correctly. Um, and I believe the guy who did the artwork, his name was Andy. That's a good. That's one for the edit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you um,
1: anyways, know, you know, Andy, so they, good old Andy.
0: <laughs> they uh, so they did. Andy actually comes back around. So that's how they got their legs with the label. And so when I came in, they were sort of, you know, you were still doing things with, like, one sheets and fax machines and calling stores, getting them to PO stuff and, like, getting them to order it from your, this distributor or this distributor, whatever. Um, So when I walked in, he was, I, like, kind of checked out his record collection, like, asked him a bunch of questions. He seemed cool. I liked face-to-face. You know, he managed other bands.
1: I said, yeah, I want to intern, work here, whatever. Um, And that was kind of it. How much longer were you touring? Like, did you, how did you transition into... Because I think if your role as being kind of like uh, maybe uncredited A and R, like I don't know, were you ever called an A and R person?
0: I think, I think in very I, I think that maybe that's a great role, right? I think at various stages it was something different.
1: Okay, <laughs> it was just kind of a you were kind of a catch-all. You're like the Swiss Army knife of 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 the label. Like you kind of like you were an idea man. You would go on tour. You would be artist relations. You would. I mean, honestly. By the time we came around and like the anniversary started hanging around, you, you were just a cool, like a friend, you know, a guy to hang out with. Like it was just, it's like, I don't want to hang out with Cohen. I want to go hang out with Kevin. I mean,
0: that's a great job, right? Get paid yeah, to right? chill.
1: Get paid to chill. We used to call uh, Rob Sukon our vibe tech. But so I'm tr- so I'm trying to remember the timeline of like when you and I met, which I think, like, I remember when we met Rich was at the PCH club. Were you at that show? because he was with greg uh jacobs oh my god the pch club that place wasn't around for
0: very long was it no you know it was also it was an empty space next door to king diamond's rehearsal studio i didn't know that apparently king diamond rehearsed next door yeah
1: i would have been way way more into that show if i had known that at the time
0: i mean that place was like that place was nuts because the guy who promoted the shows his name was alex he was like a long beach guy he did a lot. He did a lot of shows there, like all the good anything that was like um, sort of punk rock, indie, like the San Diego scene stuff. You know, like he did all of that stuff. He brought a lot of it to LA. You
1: get that, like kind of like Gravity Records, sort of like yeah, that stuff. But then it was like you guys too, because it was all kind of one.
0: It wasn't as siloed, right? It was all kind of one thing.
1: It wasn't as compartmentalized, because yeah,
0: that's a great word for it. Yeah,
1: you know, we were all extensively misfed so all we had was each other even if we were very very different um but because i remember because we played that place i think we even got that guy's name out of like book your own fucking life or something like that uh and i don't
0: don't, yeah i'm not sure when we first met i have a one of my earlier memories of like hanging with all you guys was i can't remember there was some label that wanted to sign you guys and like they had like they all lived together in an apartment in west hollywood and they were like we went to their house. I swear to God, they were like wearing football jerseys and like, and and just like it was so weird.
1: I think I know who you're talking about, and I'm just not gonna say that the label, the label's not around anymore. But uh, it was one of those like, like subsidiary, like they had gotten some money from like a, a major or something like that to like, to like. But yeah, I remember, I remember meeting you around that time, and then like one of the things that's kind of come up in like talking about like why we ended up signing a vagrant in the first place is because like it's kind of like, it always seems to be like, well, we believed in Rich. Well, actually we really believed in Kevin. <laughs> and then it, it kind of goes from there because like you, you were our, like, even though we did believe in Rich, he was still like an adult. You know what I mean? Right. and You were you were like our friend, you know, you were right. our contemporary, you know, you're, I guess you're what a couple, how old are you now? Well, you're like a couple years younger than me, I think.
0: Yeah. I'm 41 now. I to tell you about the time that I, I landed in Madrid and I I like, it was for work. And I'm like, I look at the schedule of the fest. I think it was like Primavera. I saw Spoon was playing. I call Rob. He's like, I, I think this was at some era where I was like pranking Rob at like the worst times because I knew he was somewhere in it. Like, I'd be like, uh, I'd be like in New York. Like, I think Rob's in Japan, let's call. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was like, yo, are you here? He's like, yeah. And basically we were like, yo, let's, let's, let's like prank Ryan. He's like, okay. So... <laughs>
1: Oh, because Ryan was there with his, yeah, he was living in, he was living in France at the time? I don't yeah, know, Go on.
0: Yeah, and then, so Rob was like, come to the room, it's, like, really important. Like, so I went back to Rob's hotel, I meet him there, and he's, like, convinces Ryan, like, he's got to get to the room, because, like, he needs to talk to him face to face. And so, like, basically, we planned it so he would get Ryan in the room, and then get him, like, a few feet past the closet, so I could, like, jump out of the closet and scream at him. <laughs> and so uh, we did it but ryan like basically like leapt must have been like four or five feet into the bathroom like
2: what's going on <laughs> out.
0: and he was just like oh, oh, it was really really fun it, it was you're good. lucky he and didn't and fucking
1: he, haul really. off on you he's he's a scrapper that one i mean he, he probably would have hit you if he
0: no i had the safety of rob it was really fun
1: i guess that's true <laughs>
0: Anyway, sorry. So yeah, the the age and all that.
1: I I remember uh, retroactively, I think you telling me or Rich telling me that like Vagrant had gotten to a point where they wanted to because they put out No Motive and they had put out these sort of like compilations in the face to face live record. And, and, you know, and so they, they, they existed, but they wanted to like go to the next level. And so they were talking about a couple of different bands to try and talk to, to try and move things up. And one of them was Us. And I feel like one of them was Avail. I don't know if you guys ever talked to Avail, but am I- I That that was definitely probably one of them. I loved that. I was super into them. For some reason in my mind, it was Us, Avail, and Snapcase. I don't know why that was- (laughs)
0: Snapcase sounds all right too. Yeah. I remember being in Buffalo and they played a show with Face to Face. It was like face to face, snap case, something else, and our laundry got stolen.
1: Oh, no, from the club, no,
0: no, from like the laundromat.
1: Oh, that sucks. So, no, no, it's fine. Envy opened, it was Envy, snap case, face to face. Oh, that uh, who's Envy?
0: It was a the local, it, they were a Buffalo hardcore band.
1: How long did you tour with face to face? Um,
0: I think I did, I did a couple tours, not not a ton. Oh, um, maybe I was like 18, 19. Okay, so you were saying there was ghetto kids avail, snap case.
1: That's what I that's what I thought I, I had heard, but. It ended. Up, it ended up being us for whatever reason. I mean, we wanted to to do it, uh, but I'm trying to think like, how did we end up? Okay, so I, I remember g- making the decision to sign to Vagrant after going through the whole like Mojo Records, and because I think we were we were already working with Rich as a manager, and we had gone through all this major label b- bullshit, and we'd go, okay, fine, we'll do, we'll we got to get off Doghouse, so we'll go do a record with Vagrant, and then it was like. Rich was like, okay, i will got you sorted, studio, tour bus is gonna come pick you up. And then how did you get conned into having a stay at your house?
0: Oh, I have no idea. That's, and then, that's <laughs> right, you guys stayed at my house. I forgot, I, I don't know, but weirdly I drove down that street like a week ago. Is
1: that house yeah. still there? That house is still there. You, we stayed in your house. This, there were six of us, cause Brawl was with us. Brawl, wow. <laughs> Do you ever cross paths with that dude in in any professional capacity anymore? cuz he's in management.
0: Yeah, he's in Colorado. I don't I, we don't, I haven't come across him. We haven't come across each
1: other. Uh well, he was he was with us because we were going to record with Blindman and none of us knew Blindman, so we were just like, well, we'll bring our sound guy to make sure that new guy doesn't make a sound too much like a Fat Records band or something like that. And uh we went and we I remember we pulled up at your house and I think you had four roommates who all kind of looked at us like they didn't know we were coming to stay with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you lent us your car and then you promptly promptly fucked off on tour for like the whole time we were there.
0: Oh yeah, that sounds that sounds like me.
1: Uh-huh. It it's yeah. cuz it is you. It is yeah. exactly what you did. <laughs> I will say it was it was a as awkward as it was cuz you had the one roommate who never left his room. Then there was I don't I don't remember who else, but when you left, I took over your bedroom, which was an absolute Dream for me because I had to get away from from everybody from time to time because we were all sleeping on like the floor and the couch and we had your but we had your your crappy old car that we would drive to Silver Lake from where was that house is it in Santa Monica
0: it was in uh, Westwood
1: West okay so we would we would drive to Silver Lake and back every day and that was. Uh, that was i don't know it just it's such a a wild thing just because like we were like staying at your house and your roommates seemed annoyed that we were there and then you left and it just kind of (laughs) it's like super awkward for like four weeks and then at one point eva from feta and some of her friends came and stayed there too so there were like nine house guests at that it was crazy (laughs) you weren't there (laughs) So, okay. So when did you start like kind of slowing down from touring and like really being a a label? I don't, I don't see the thing is like all the, all the terms for what I think you would professionally be called, like whether it was an executive or an A&R person or something like that feel weird to say about you because i don't think of you and i think of you as my friend who worked at vagrant you know and it's just kind of like it's weird to think of like oh you had a job title you know what i mean so i don't like at what <laughs> at, at what point at what point do you have a job title at vagrant and do you become because i guess for all intents and purposes you were like the head of AR. r yeah i guess so right i they,
0: i because like i sorry the question what well, the question was what my job title
1: was well or just when it became like because it sounds like you're like an, you're like an intern there. And then you went on tour a lot with some of the bands, including us. And then at one point it probably you became, became
0: like a more formal when I got to like in my twenties. And that sounds funny, but I think as I got older and then as Rich and John were maturing the business, my role was sort of more defined and had a place. Right. And at the same time, it was still kind of all over the place. Right. Like, cause I would be like, my role would be like a and r stuff and then i'd break out to lawrence for a couple weeks right um go to new york see shows spend time with whoever's on like go on the tour etc so um i'm trying i'm trying you know then i'm i'm trying to think like the day what the day-to-day was like but i i think it was a lot of stuff dealing with you guys like the bands specifically and i dealt a lot with like outreach so with what with it like outreach sort of like oh, for okay. booking ads and zines um you know when websites like when music websites started rolling out um it was buying banner advertising um which at the time wasn't super popular um and there were not very very many music websites um so i did a lot of that stuff so it was like a lot of marketing stuff and then a lot of A&R-ish
1: stuff. did you uh how how was how was that like i i know like there was always this kind of this air of like started as like friendly conflict that maybe got in less less friendly over the years between you and Rich and Cohen. Like kind of all I always thought it was like professionally you, you all respected each other, but you just disagreed about stuff or like the ways to
0: Yeah, I think um yeah, I guess you know, like the like what we're seeing is or what you're perceiving as conflict was probably tension. I think the tension it's probably a large part just to growth and and, and like that being of like people personally right like people got married they got into their 30s they had started families the whole thing and then um concurrently you know there's this record label and i think a a really good thing to note is that there wasn't a stream streaming wasn't invented it wasn't even an idea and so it was very different right like you were just you were fighting for counter space and like the things you were fighting for to get ahead for the acts that you were that were signed to the label or or the ones you were promoting at radio whatever it was the the work was just a little different right like email wasn't nearly as fluid as it is today um there were a lot of record stores you know music videos weren't really a thing you made because there was nowhere really to watch them right so um and then you know i think i wasn't around a lot for like the when they like I kind of bailed for a little bit and like, they, you know, they sound like dashboard contact. They had that era. Um, so I had like a, like a gap year or two where I just kind of wasn't involved in that
1: stuff. I think that's what, when Fiddler came on, when you, when you split.
0: Yeah. Amy came on, I split for a little bit and came back, but yeah, I would say, look, man, like those guys, you know, they, I think, look, they gave me my first job. They let Rich put in an unbelievable amount of like faith and trust into just letting me do my thing. Um, and gave a lot of guidance along the way, right? Um, you know, and, and on reflecting on it, it's like, oh yeah, and John did too in his way, right? Um, and it's, it's inter- you know, I think what they built at the time was really cool. You know, it's not, it's really hard to do. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know. That's, yeah. I just think it's, it's interesting. Like when you think back on it, it's like, fuck, you, they can, you guys did a lot, you know? Accomplished a ton. But it's still, the things that they were able to get done then, and you guys as well, like it, they're still really hard to achieve now. So I think, you know, when I think about it, sometimes I just think about that, like being young and just kind of wanting to only dunk, you know? Like, yo, give me the ball. down the ball. I'm just going to run to the hoop and dunk, you know? That's all I want to do. Um, well, it was also
1: something that like Rich was saying. He was just like, yeah, we didn't know any better. What we tried to do was crazy, you know? Like it's, it doesn't, and it shouldn't necessarily have worked, but it did, and we certainly wouldn't try it again now. We would look at it on paper and be like, you want to do what? You know, like there's no way that would Anybody could pull that off, whether it was us as a band or them as a label or or anything like that. It's crazy. I was gonna say something that like has come up a lot in these interviews with other other bands is how much Vagrant seemed to, and I guess I kind of always assumed this was your influence, but I guess it's Rich too. Like, kind of like you would sign bands and then just let them be bands and just like not get like you know how like labels can get super involved and like. Kind of that we don't hear a single kind of like mentality as opposed to like letting someone just be creative, and like to a band, everybody on vagrant seems for for the most I think almost almost hundred percent like seems to be like, yeah they we signed with them and then we went in the studio and then we turned in the record, and they didn't like they didn't fuck with us at all and i I don't know, I guess i I always just kind of assume that was that was your your influence. Because you seem to be like, I don't know that that just seems like more like your personality to me. Do you I, think will, that
0: that- I will gladly take credit for it
1: <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. so um-
0: but see, I you know, I don't know. I think they were I think the style then and the tendency was to like trust your instinct, right and like roll with it. You know?
1: Yeah, but that, that's not really the style of the music in the record industry in general. You know what I mean? Yeah, but Rick, you know, Rich,
0: you know, Rich was like his favorite band The Clash.
1: You know, like I don't, you know, I don't think there's a, I don't, are there any doc? There's
0: no story. Like, did Bernie ever walk up to Mick and be like, "This one sucks, man. Like, can you just sing it from the heart." No, he was like, "Yo, you don't look cool. I'm gonna make you look cool." I guess it's true. So that's when it's a very brief summer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. We we come out there in '99. And stay at your house and you go on tour. And then it, the way I remember it is like for the next two years, it seems like everything just starts snowballing at the label. Do you think that is that how you remember it? Yeah,
0: I would. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair. Like it was kind of avalanche for sure.
1: I didn't, the the impression that I get from Rich, and tell me if you think this is true, is that there seemed to be like a lot of, uh, difficulty keeping up with demand like as far as like manufacturing and there's something about a porn dvd manufacturer made the cds for vagrant or something like that
0: oh wow yeah he fuck um okay so yeah but um wait what's the question i
1: don't know Um, well
0: I, i guess to speak to that like yeah there was the demands on vagrant at that time 98 99 2000 right they were very it was really um Like you said, there was like this sort of a downpour of business, right? And like, just things were going well, a lot of momentum. Um, But yeah, to your point, like I remember we had a manufacturer, you had the CD manufacturer and then the booklet, but then people wanted to start doing specialty packaging, right? And then it's like, do you print the CD? Where do you get the disc made and then send it to the packaging people and yada, yada, yada. But it was um, a lot of it because you had to control your inventory. There wasn't like a ton of drop shipping at the time. Um, So what they had done was they, they leased... Two apartments next door to the office in Santa Monica. Um, interesting anecdote about that. Next door to that was a guy who bought and sold um comic book and above was um, a BDSM like Miss Madam. So if they were doing late shipment, there was a guy that worked. The guy that worked those rooms was a, there was sexual Ryan and then there's Ryan Quigley um
1: sexual ryan yeah
0: his nickname for short was sex um but, I,
1: don't re- I don't remember sexual ryan you gotta
0: ask rich sex was around he did like he would do all the inventory mail order along with the other ryan um okay. but uh but yeah so they managed that um that part of what vagrant was because there wasn't really like a there was mail order i don't recall that we had like a very robust one um and there wasn't a lot of like online shopping run and merchandising uh, at least for the labels. And, and and when it started to become that, Vagrant probably wasn't the lead, not nearly as focused on that as, say, like some of the hardcore label wars and stuff like that. as a lot, you know what it was? is like a lot of logistics and supply chain. If I had to like think back and like label it something, that's what it was. And I think, to your point, like the tension, pro, you know, I think it was sort of, there was a lot driven on that because of those demands, right? Meeting manufacturing deadlines, dropships, getting thousands of CDs to target because like you got lucky and got an end cap program right and then trying to you know get it through to the various independent distributors out there because there's all these you know I think people forget right there's like independent record stores you know so every small town you go to there's that one like sort of base for the touring bands. Right. And there was, you know, each town usually had like, I don't know, you know, this, you know, each, they had a store and you could dig for records. There was like the punk guy. There was like a guy who knows all the breaks, the, the jazz aficionado, the dude who only listens to Sun Ra,
1: et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's true. I used, to work, I used to work in one of those stores. Um So yeah, there was like, yeah,
0: there was a lot of demands like that. It was interesting, you know, and like, I think because in that time, you know, your packaging could make you more distinct and unique amongst the marketplace, right? It wasn't like a great photo shoot for Instagram or, you know, a killer trick or meme or dance or something, right? So it was like, a lot of it was that detail. Um, So I think a lot of, uh, and then a lot of time got put into those kind of resources too. So like the graphic design and the packaging, and then like, I want to do a quad gatefold digipack CD with like a booklet made of rubber from space. Um, but, it, but we can only charge $5 for it. Cause that's, you know, we got it. So it was a lot of stuff like that.
1: One well, then you were trying to like, I think, cause previously when we were on Doghouse, we were really only in independent record stores. And like, I remember it was a big thing of getting into like Best Buy with Vagrant and I guess target and, walmart to a lesser i don't know if you got into walmart
0: best buy Buy and virgin were best buy virgin and tower were the ones for sure and then best buy i remember we used to go to the best buy that was closest on like release day and find you know they used to stack the inventory underneath the rack so we would find our releases (laughs) like fuck the alphabet up on the cd rack and then just stick all our cds where they should be on the rack so
1: wait what it was
0: (laughs) So you would go into the store, right? And like, you'd be in the, you know, it's like the aisle, right? And you'd be in G rock, right? So we'd go look in the cat, like underneath. And, you know, they had the long box trays for the CDs, not the box, but they had the trays. So like people wouldn't steal it.
1: Oh, right. When they got rid of the long box CDs and then they had those those plastic things.
0: So, and then the seat, but we would just take them and just jam them up higher, right? Because like sometimes it'd be on the lowest raft. So you just like take whatever, I don't know, sponge record or something and like move that down to the bottom and put your guys' shit on top.
1: was <laughs> <is> punk rock.
0: <laughs> I mean, well, sure. I, think, I feel like that's like the right era, like time period.
1: I never knew that. And then when Rich was talking about, like we were never, at least I wasn't, maybe Ryan was because he was around when he was dating Christine, like he was around the office more. But like, I never knew that there was any like tension or difficulty with like any distribution or, or any, anything like that. We were just like, we just thought it was a smooth, you know, smooth running machine. And it wasn't any, any difficulty on your guys's end at all, which I think is kind of, kind of interesting just that we didn't, we didn't know, or I didn't know.
0: Uh, it, uh, that's, that's really, that's kind of great to hear. It just kind of reaffirms that like they have their shit together. We um, were dealing,
1: we were dealing with our own like growing pains things of like shows that had been booked six months before having, Twice as many people show up and fights breaking out and stuff like that. So, which was not fun. When is it that you st- you kind of, because you you said you dipped out and then you came back? Uh, yeah. When was, and when was that?
0: I want to say like around 9 11 or out, like right after 9 11. Was
1: that 9 11 some sort of a?
0: No, it's just, I remember it. I just remember it from a time. I actually was around 9 11. Here's why because on 9 11, I was, I had been away from Vagrant for maybe two years or something and they had moved. We had had these new offices, all this stuff, but I remember like that I was gonna start going back into their offices that day. On nine eleven. On nine eleven. And I remember Rich and I, for whatever reason, we both drove to the office. So we drove to the office and he was like, I'm going home. I'm like, Cool, I'm gonna go home too. But so it was kind of like, What's going on? And actually Ellis was in LA. On 9-11. because I remember I called him. So I was like, I, I didn't know what to do. And he I knew he was, you know, he's in We knew each other well and all that stuff. Anyway, but yeah, it was a couple of years. I think I was living in Chicago at the time. Um for like I lived in Chicago for like nine months, went on tour, came back, just kind of started doing label stuff again.
1: Did uh what did you do during that time that you were away? You were just touring? I think I went on tour a little bit. Didn't you and Jim David like start a clothing company or something like that?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Jim and I were making shirts and trying to sell them online, selling them online. And uh, I went to Chicago to live with Heather because she went to school up there. Um, Oh, that's right. uh, Then, yeah, we went back. She was like, I don't know, I'll try out And we went back to LA. And then maybe it was like a year after we got back from LA that I started kind of going back in in earnest or something. They were always really, look, Rich and John were always really good to me. Even times like they didn't pay me. I had an office there, you know? They always kind of provided like shelter and like stability when I needed it, you know, like professionally. And it was like, it was really, really good for me,
1: personally. So wait, you had an office at Vagrant, but you weren't working at Vagrant?
0: There was a point, yeah, when I had like space there, but I just wasn't working there.
1: Huh, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, he'd like let me have a desk, you know? What
0: were you doing? I probably was like starting, just starting to manage bands and like hustle doing side hustles
1: did you ever work with hard eight in a management capacity
0: no i don't think i i don't think i ever did i think i was always the label side of it. okay but rich was always very encouraging you know he i think the first day i met him he was like you should just read everything that comes through the fax machine because i'm not going to have time to tell you what's going on because all this stuff is happening. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what else do I do? Call those record stores, You know, it was like that. So maybe that, some of that tendencies is somewhere. Right. But he was really good about being open with a lot of that. So I would be able to learn it. And, and you know, when you're in an office has a management company you know they you, you just kind of pick up on things
1: did you pick up on i'm assuming you did there if there was like tension between like the heart eight bands on the label and like uh like
0: management clients versus label yeah or whatever. i you know honestly man i i didn't i would not i if there was that's the first time mean, he because rich was like rich had a really open door right like so he managed a few bands that were on AM like power pop bands and stuff but a lot of them would like come through and chill, you know, a lot of them were LA based and like a lot would just come and hang out at the office. You've been around this business. What do you think made Vagrant different than other labels that you've seen over the years? It's a good question. I guess in thinking back on it, I think what, I don't know, I think Vagrant, like it had the, I think what made it different was like Rich is, Rich is really ambitious. And I think it was slightly different of an operating status quo for like what people thought punk labels should do at the time. Um, and I think, you know, Rich wanted to retain the spirit of of what he loved uh, in punk rock and all that. Um, but I, and he, but he, while main, he wanted to maintain that while achieving something greater than what had been achieved so far. And he was able to get that pretty far with Face to Face early on. And then he was able to get it further with the acts that he signed at Vagrant, right? And then he was able to sort of lead and commandeer. Um, And what I think is unique is that he had this sort of wide-ranged vision when, at a time, people were very, to your point, Matt, very compartmentalized, right? Um, And Rich understood something about, like, his training as a entertainment manager right like it it helped expose him to something about how to uh create good circumstances for his clients right and i think his solution to that was becoming the label and and being fair along the way but like I, I i just i that's my interpretation of it right is like that's what he and, and that is it takes a lot of risk because it takes a lot of balls number one because you know you were at that time right you'd be shipping you might be not unpaid on 50,000 units of full length, right and I have to go manufacture more because like, oh shit, we just, like, Europe wants to order right? And you don't have a license for, you know, fuck, like it got added to a radio station and things are blowing. Or you got the MCAT program that you never thought you'd get. Um, so they are juggling different things then, right? And then... <sighs> and then like you know then the internet starts happening and it opens up a whole bunch of different other things
1: is there something that's like a is cohen a part of that puzzle or does it like is it mostly just like rich's ambition kind of thing like i know cohen was no,
0: cohen's to- cohen's 100 percent a part of that puzzle man because like you don't it uh it, like that sort of the momentum that rich and the momentum at which rich was operating and the pace and speed he needed someone who was going to be like? I'm protecting the business, right? And so Cohen was able to kind of, you know, do that for what they were doing, you know, and really get like having to operate. So you know, it's a it's sometimes forgotten when you think about businesses, right? Like that, like there's two people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's more than one. You know, like that, uh, like that WeWork movie that's out right now, right? It's like, why isn't the other dude there? Where's the other guy at? You know, there's a
1: lot of uh, un- unsung people that you know. No, you- but and- like, regardless,
0: I don't think. Cohen is unsung. I just think his role was very different from Rich's, right? And what he had to be responsible for was very different to Rich. And it was also the kind of things that in any business that's really unset, right? No one really wants to be responsible for logistics and distribution, but it's kind of, you know, it to, to, to for what a record label is, that's like in some ways the most important job because like if the records are getting distributed and moving, you know, there's no income and revenue. So he, you know, he had to balance a lot of that all the time. And he also had to balance Rich is risk, and I'm not like rich. is a risk risk taker naturally, and I think Gawen had to sort of really maintain.
1: It basically kind of sounds like he was the one keeping Rich from bankrupting the company <laughs> with all of his big ideas.
0: But I I don't want to paint Rich as some like like walking in, you know, puffing a cigar, and being like,
1: "Today we're gonna no, make no, no, the I'd...
0: toilets gold," you know. Uh, uh, it, yeah, so he was he just like he was very driven you know and like to your point when you sit back and you think about it um you know what was rich then like 32 was he th- was he really
2: maybe yeah, 35 right it's,
0: you know what i mean like that the the, the kind of like it, it that's why i'm always kind of like
1: wow, that was that's crazy it's really intense well it's kind of this perfect storm of like rich's ambition cohen's ability to kind of like i don't know like manage that and then your creativity in that and then also i would say ellis is part of it too as far as like the live component and like i mean i i feel like he was always involved in like maybe not in the logistics of like manufacturing and distributing records but it seems like his influence is a pretty big part of this story too any positive crazy stories that you remember? So here's a story about Saves the Day
0: when they made Stay What You Are. And I feel like you should probably, if you can, get one of them to retell it because they might have a better memory of it. Um, however, it goes like this. So on um, Fountain in La Cienega, like Fountain's a, a thorough, kind of a thoroughfare side street in LA, right? Like, it goes uh, east-west across the city. And it's just adjacent, what we'll call it the sunset. So it's on our hill. And it's behind, basically behind the House of Blues when it was still there. Saves the day Come coming to LA to make Stay what you are. I mean, similar situation, right? They need a place to stay, let furnished a little bit longer term. Um, this time though, like I didn't have a house with a bunch of rooms that people could sleep on the floor, right? And there was a budget to rent the place. So they so Fiddler ended up finding a like a rental of a guy who's an actor, right? But he was like off doing some movie. So this place is like pretty big apartment. Um Latviana got found, And as time goes by, like things just keep getting getting messier, right? Because I think everyone was like 24, or 25 at the time. Um, and those guys smoked a lot of weed. By the time they were out of that house, um, and they made of, they made the record of Schnaff at Sound Factory, but by the time that, or something, by the time they were out of that house, the toilet in the guest bathroom had somehow been lodged off the floor and like broke, split in half, right? Um, the ceiling, wow, <laughs> it was insane. We would, keep calling the guy whose apartment was Attila because there's only one thing that led to this guy's identity. And it was this like VHS box set of some TV movie you did about Attila the hunt, right? So years later, if we're probably on tour or something. We see a movie trailer for 300 and there's a guy screaming. And we're like, holy shit, that's the fucking guy whose apartment you destroyed. Like they really killed his apartment, right? They like really killed it. And I kept the the key fobs for the parking garage because I was like, "Yo, I get free parking at Las Vegas at Sunset Behind the house of blues." It's amazing. Had those key fobs for years. But anyways, it was Gerard Butler's house. <laughs>
1: you just park in the
0: guy's apartment, park in his garage. Yeah, hell yeah. Who he was gonna move back in? It was Gerard Butler. No way. Yeah, it was Gerard Butler, Att- Attila the Hunt.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> Amy Fleischer Madden, in my experience at least, was always known by just one name Fiddler. I honestly didn't know that it wasn't her real last name until a couple of years ago. Her self run Florida record label, Fiddler Records, was first to release Newfound Glory and Dashboard Confessional. She was instrumental in bringing Dashboard to Vagrant when she started working there in 2000. I spoke to Amy about that time so we are talking here specifically about your relationship and association with vagrant and the bands that you 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 kind of seem to be the uh almost like the gatekeeper to the South Florida emo punk scene from the <laughs> late 90s early like it seemed like like j- just between dashboard and newfound glory that like you these are people that were your friends initially it wasn't like you just found these random bands is that correct
2: i think it was kind of it was the relationships coexisted because i started going to shows and then i started booking shows and then as soon as i started booking shows the bands became my friends Mm. so but and um, my first release that i put out was chris Carava's first band and we weren't they were the vegan andes the bacon andes and we weren't like Buds, when that first happened, but we became friends through that. So, and then newfound glory happened because Chad was in Shai Hulud, and like in my prime of booking shows, Shai Hulud was like the one of the biggies. And it was like, okay, like this is very cool. You have a new band, and then you know, it's it's a it's a longer story. But yeah, it was it was a very like everything was. Bl- blended friends and bands and that whole thing
1: so where does that then like what made you decide to start a record label at that time if you're just a you're a promoter
2: to tell you the total honest impetus was i wanted to listen to these bands in my car (laughs) it was like this would be so cool if i could get in my car and listen to my friends bands and uh There were a couple of really small record labels in Miami that were mostly, I think actually all of them at the time were band members putting out their own records. There was that punk ska band called Against All Authority. And, you know, years before they were on, I think they were on Hopeless at some point, but years before that, they were from Fort Lauderdale and they were like my punk rock heroes because they put out their own seven inches, they booked their own shows, they made their own merch and like I latched onto them and I was like, how can I do this? But I want to do this for everybody. And it was such a good community that you know, I was like 15 and they were 25 plus, you know, they were much older. And like, legitimately, I was like, can, can we hang out and I buy you coffee and you tell me how to do this? And they were like, yeah, totally. And it was just like, such an inclusive like DIY world where Danny was the singer of against all authority. And Tim was, I think the trumpet player, they invited me over to their house and we, they like sat me down and they were like, this is how you put out a record and you call this person. And they literally like step-by-step, Told me everything, and it was just that doesn't really happen anymore, you know. Like every really happened a lot then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think they knew my intentions were good. Like I just wanted to like do more for the bands that were doing whatever they could already. And in the beginning, of course, it was not like a like let's start a business. It was like let's just make records that we want to listen to. Like so. Yeah. That that's how things started.
1: So was Caraba in the agency too?
2: hmm
1: Okay. So you've put out, you put out two of his bands before the first Dashboard record. And then, so was that just kind of like a, Hey, I've got this like acoustic thing I've been doing. Do you want to put it out? Sort of thing.
2: The weird thing about Chris in the agency is Caraba because there's another Chris. So, um, The weird thing about Caraba in the agency is the vacant Andes ended and he was trying to like figure out where he fits, you know, like what what is next. And the agency was this really strong trio of individually minded creatures that all came together to form a different thing. And when they invited Caraba in, I don't think they were fully ready to have a fourth brain. Mm. Um, So it wasn't. Like, like, for me, Chris was not really in the agency. Like okay. it's, it's like he appeared on a record called Engines. I don't really think he wrote much or anything but i know he sang and played a bit of guitar but it was not like for me that's not a caraba band that was just right. like a, a moment that happened and i feel like that 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 existed for chris to kind of unite with mike marsh mentally and musically because marsh was in the agency too right marsh was the agency is that the one where he wore a headset mike he sure did and i'm he telling you Florida had some stuff man <laughs> keep bringing up all the goodies about it <laughs> yeah i booked that show for you mr by the way um oh,
1: thank you very much that must have been how we first met i would assume is by is.
2: that's how i met you and that's how i met ellis oh
1: that's unfortunate <laughs>
2: <laughs> mr happy Mister happy yeah but yeah so like mike was the agency was mike's band it oh. was not Chris's band. But yeah, so I forget what your original trajectory of Chris's, the Chris question was, but that's my age. Oh, I was just trying to,
1: because like the thing about that first dashboard record is that like, it wasn't crazy for anybody in the scene to have an acoustic guitar necessarily, but it was different to just like have that be the defining thing of the whole like record. And it was, and it it was kind of a, I mean, it's, it's ultimately, it's still just singer songwriter stuff, which has existed, you know, since, you know, the the beginning of time, but it's like, it wasn't in our scene at all.
2: It hadn't been done in the style that he was doing it in our world. Mm-hmm. Like, it would be completely normal if you had come out with an acoustic guitar and played, but the fact that he was doing it alone and that was the full depth of it... That was, was the
1: conceit, was just like, it's just it's just him.
2: It's just him. And then, but I think what made it unique was... It became more of a community like sing-along thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Like at the beginning, it was just like overwhelming, like the crowd participation. So when did that, did that
1: start early on? I think of that as being a little bit later that that became a thing.
2: um, Locally, it started really quickly because he had already done the Vacant Andy's bits of the agency and then Further Seems Forever. And then by the time he was dashboard, it was like he could draw 50 people just on word of mouth from friends. Like that's the other thing about South Florida is like it wasn't a scene like you needed to pull people that you didn't know. It was like, you know, grapevine kind of shit. Like, oh, Chris is playing on Thursday. Okay, yeah, I'll go. Like it wasn't a big deal. So from the beginning, there was a really large hometown following. And then once he ventured out of our little nest, then things got a little bit rocky the first couple go-arounds. What do you mean? Um, just like, I think, I can't even remember the structure of it, but we, would, we did a tour in my car.
1: You <laughs> um, and Chris?
2: Yeah. Uh, I had a Jeep, so I was like, you know, we put your guitar in the yeah. back in our bags and we just go like, and at some point, I can't remember if this was with the movie life. They were like, just come and play for 10 minutes before we play. And we would just follow them. And then it got a little bit confusing for people when the shows were a bit more hardcore natured, as opposed to what you would call emo, which is a whole other conversation. But like, you know, movie life fans were more punkish, hardcore-ish, like, in h2o world back then it wasn't so pop punky so yeah there it was just like less of uh there were some rough nights you know
1: (laughs) well that's the thing that i always like if i ever hear anybody saying anything about chris i'm like no dude he fucking he went out and opened for fucking snap case like it's just like yeah like by himself you know like it's just like that takes some stones you know like that's he's either crazy or or incredibly strong-willed, or maybe both.
2: Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, that that tour was like H2O, Snapcase, and the explosion of all bands, the explosion, to round that out.
1: Like, and were you like doing AR there, or what were you doing at Vigrant? Like, what job?
2: My job was artist mm-hmm. relations. That was my job, <laughs> amongst 17 other <laughs> things. So, yeah, I brought Chris in to meet Rich, and and they hit it off, and, and then the rest is... Sort of history, I guess.
1: So you're working at Vagrant. This is like 2000. You said that you moved to LA.
2: Yeah, to the, the end of 2000, like November. I think I moved on your wedding oh, okay. day. Okay. So whenever you, it was like on November, November 18th, 11th, I think. 2000. Ah, 11, 11. There you go. It's really. Usually, I know that I'm sorry <laughs> okay <laughs> Dubin was at right. your wedding like Dubin was going to help me move but he went to your uh, wedding
1: you know who else was at my wedding was Ellis and it's the only time I've ever seen him not wear a hat
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> good to know no hat for weddings yeah, it was
1: him and Kevin kusatsu neither of which were wearing hats
2: oh uh, <laughs> that's that's cute
1: so tell me about your time at, at vagrant when your artist re- your artist really how old are you at that At that point, I think I was
2: 21. Yeah, I was was very young. Uh, Almost a year. Almost made it a year. (laughs) (laughs) What drove you away? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we want to talk about that. My time there uh, was—I don't know. Eye-opening is a good—a good word for it. It was, you know, I went from like running my own label in my bedroom in a. City where I knew everything and everyone, too. And then I was on tour, God knows how long, with Saves the Day and other bands. And then I dropped myself into Los Angeles in a real, like, functioning record label with, like, real touring bands like you, you know? And it yeah, was, but you already uh, knew us. I already knew you, but, you know, it was different to be, like, on the team as opposed to, like, hey, do you guys want to stay at my parents' house? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was it was really fun truthfully it was there was so much happening all the time it was like the stay what you are era the from here to infirmary era and then you guys it was like that i started the tail end of mm. something to write home about so i just remember so much robot related <laughs> like in the old office yeah, in yeah. santa monica Yeah. Yeah. The storage space below and like people packing orders for CDs. Like it was like it was such a specific time in music, you know, and then the anniversary came through, which, of course, is your world. It was crazy. And, you know, face to face was still banging around and I would travel sometimes with Rich, sometimes not. You know, one of my most like distinct memories was... I tried I I tried to convince Rich to sign Jimmy Eat World because Clarity had come out and it tanked and which was the joke of all jokes. Are you are you kidding me? And I think they, you know, Capitol let them go. And I was like, this band is going to be a thing. And and Rich just couldn't couldn't get into it. Like and I was just so upset that I was like, they're not even on a label like they are free agents like and it just didn't work out. That that for me was the one that, quote unquote, got away. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that was that band though that, know, that was like, because you know, we
1: have a really distinct moment with seeing that band in like 96 and Jim just turning to me and going, this is what we need to be doing. Like basically, that <laughs> was just like, that was it. And then this band yeah. has so much potential to be so yeah. huge. And then they make Clarity, which is just this like masterpiece of a record that is... So ahead of its time and all of this stuff, but it's just like that's crazy that Rich couldn't get that couldn't get it. That's funny. that is. A, so, because you were still doing Fiddler the whole time you were at Vagrant. I want to say, why did you leave? but I guess you don't want to go into that specifically. but like was that sort of a you want to focus more on your own label?
2: Yeah. so when I started at Vagrant, there was a lot, and I'm sure you can attest to this to whatever degree you'd like to. There was a lot of push pull. Between Rich and John. That's a polite and way to put it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you had, they had such a mom dad relationship where mom would be- say okay and dad would say no. And it was very confusing as an employee of a company to deal with that. And Rich brought me in under the guise that I could still do Fiddler, that they would distribute Fiddler, and that. I could sign, I can't remember if it was two or three bands. Like I had a quota that, because I was like, you, your roster's already full. I don't want to just come in and maintain projects that I'm not involved with yet. And it was like, you can sign X amount of bands and we'll distribute your label. Kind of like we are going to
1: be almost like a farm team so, of Vagrant a little bit.
2: No, 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 no. So not that okay. Fiddler would be entrenched in vagrant land. Like what I mean, signing bands, signing bands to vagrant, like Fiddler was going to be my own thing because at the time I was much more interested in smaller projects. Like I was not delusional thinking that I could sign Jimmy World to Fiddler. Like that's just not reality. But, you know, there were smaller bands, like I think in that era, I like really wanted to work with like Engine Down, you know, like stuff that would not work on vagrant when they were that size, you know. But then when I really got to Vagrant and like got into the culture of it there was no distribution for fiddler there was no time for fiddler and it was just like okay what what's going on
1: do you think that was a miscommunication between Rich and John or do you think that was cuz the thing that I'm is really coming up a lot is how much Things were happening so fast that a lot of there just wasn't time to do everything that needed to be. I
2: think it's both because also at the time, you'll definitely remember it was so tumultuously like chaotic with distribution. It was like, okay, we're with TV TVT. No, then this record's with this other company. And then there was like, I don't think they knew where Uh they were going, so they could not bring me with them, like which I understand but as a kid who wants to run their own company that doesn't fly, you know? It's
1: funny, like I've learned so much more about that distribution chaos doing this podcast than I think I ever knew at the time because we were just in our, you know, we're in our own little bubble and we're just like, I don't care. Just well, get the record out. you know like,
2: But I think also we were not really supposed to communicate what was happening because you don't tell a band that's on tour promoting records like, oh, by the way, your record might be pulled because we're leaving this company and it didn't end well. I you don't know like I mean? that. Like,
1: like, cause that's something that's coming up now when I'm just like, I'm, I'm not a, sometimes I feel like people treat us like we're super precious or something. And I am just like, I'm just going to be like, okay, this is the reality of the situation. We should know about it. You know what I mean? This is our career. Yeah.
2: Oh, f- trust me. I'm on the same <laughs> way as you. Like it's not funk at all. And then I started to like have real, like I would never mention what bands, but I would be like of a different mind Opinion wise about what was getting released and signed. And it was like, I don't, this is not the team I want to fight for long term, which I think comes from, I had my own company. Like I I got to steer the ship. So it was hard for me to like hear a record that was going to be released and be like, okay, this is the next year we're gonna work on this like this is yeah, not like my something favorite you thing. in love with so, yeah which is you know which was important for me to figure out growth wise that I'm not that company person like at the time you know being all of 21 years old like I was i I wanted to call the shots of what gets
1: so how paid. did the uh how did your exit go
2: it wasn't it wasn't a happy exit <laughs> it was not high fives and handshakes. Um, I think I, I left and I went home and I did laundry and I was like, I haven't done laundry in a really long time. I think I realized I'd just been neglecting everything in my life to like run at the speed of vagrant. And it was just like, okay, I'm all done. And then I just, you know, buried myself back in fiddlerland and I found happiness there, you know?
1: Yeah. It's interesting when you said run at the speed of vagrant, that's a really good way to put it. I think, because it did, it did seem like it was like just so chaotic.
2: Yeah. I mean, it seems like such a like ridiculous statement. Like I went home and did laundry, like, but legitimately I. took time to like breathe. Yeah. No, there was no, there was no food in my house. There was no laundry, like no car washes. It was like, you couldn't really maintain functional human sanity things while working there. It was just, you know and it was like i can't even imagine if social media had existed oh, it was back really then worse. because like yeah because we were already like on our terrible flip phones 24 hours a day like it was like cuz so many bands were on tour at the same time and so many records were coming out at the same time that it was just bananas and everything always went wrong like you know the 400 cds that were drop shipped to ohio didn't arrive and it's like okay that's going to be my Tuesday. Yeah. There you were know? a lot of like, fires
1: to put out. I always thought like, yeah, and oftentimes they were like fires that could have been pre- prevented. You know what I mean? Like it always just seemed like this, even when we would go just like hang out there when we would be in town, it was kind of like just a lot of, it was a lot of yelling, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of love, but there was a lot of yelling and there was.
2: Well, I, couldn't, I couldn't hang with the yelling. Like that's just not part of what I want my daily life to be like. And there was just so <laughs> much frustration. Were you, and yelling were you only in ever. the old office? Were you ever in the new one? Oh, no, I was in the new one. And, and like the new one got even crazier because the staff got bigger, the warehouse got bigger. And then we were all in these weird like treehouse mm-hmm. cubby rooms. And then everybody would just yell across the office, which had like aluminum siding in it. Which made it even worse. So it like, yeah, was really
1: loud. I think maybe the logic would have been that, like, we're going to put Rich and John as far away from each other as possible because they just fight all the time. <laughs> but rather than doing that, Rich would just scream from the other like, Go ahead! Yeah. Go ahead!
2: <laughs> yeah. And then you would hear somebody stomping, like, big, heavy Doc Martens, just like... And then a door would slam, and then it'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then... I mean, my era was Joby, like... Joby, Tweety, Jesse. That's who I was. James Chuck. I'm trying Cho. to
1: remember. Yeah, James Chuck.
2: James Tweety. There were there were days where like You know in all of the chaos that we would have to literally just stop what we were doing because no one was sure what was happening (laughs) that tweety would be like i'm gonna go get 40s Do do you guys want 40s like and it'd be like okay and we would just sit in the back and just like have a drink because we were so fucking stressed out that we just had to sit and wait for like okay now we're working with this record label today like what okay like it was bananas
1: it's Straight so banks. interesting because it's just like this time of like kind of unparalleled exponential growth in the label of like all these bands, like kind of really exploding at the same time. And it just gets, it just sounded like it get like incredibly chaotic and like almost like no one knew who was driving the boat a little bit.
2: Yeah. Well, it also like when I started, it was right when Kevin okay. left. So when I was on tour with saves the day, Kevin and Rich, their relationship was dissolving in whatever function it was like their relationship is their thing i I can't even describe it um and and i I was brought in to be the quote-unquote new kevin which was also super confusing for me because kevin Mm -hmm. was my friend kevin was like i'm moving to kansas and you can rent my room so like i literally moved into kevin's apartment in his room and then i started working in vagrant in what would have been in his old job, and I feel like Kevin, somebody somewhere. I'm not her. I'm not sure <laughs> who thought of it or if it was even articulated, but it was like. Let's sign all of the biggest bands. Let's do that. Like, let's let's take all of the biggest bands from each scene and just go like it was, was like that intentional. Fucking,
1: I because I've, I've wondered that myself I,
2: with knowing Kevin. I think, yes, I think that could have come from Kevin's brain. But I think that you guys and I hate to use like an advertising word, but I think you guys were the tentpole of the whole thing. It was like we have this proof of concept with the get up kids and it works and we can do it so let's do that seven yeah. more times like whereas i think like the normal trajectory thought process would have been like we need one more big band it was like let's just fucking you blow it bigger, up like yeah which i think is where all of the chaos comes in because when you have a band that was your size in that era also we were inventing the wheel like as it was going we were like building the airplane in the air it was like okay now we're doing this kind of tour how do we promote it i don't know let's try these 10 things like it was like trying to reach new people and new media it was like it was just a whole confusing era you know what Uh, i mean yeah (laughs) Yeah. You know I, mean, I, mean. I didn't have yeah. to work
1: on that, that side of it, but yeah, definitely like just, just being in the environment. Cause it was, it was all very like, I felt very like cared for there, but it was just like, it it was were, just, like you how were, do you guys like, operate we, like this was, every fucking day? You know, like.
2: It was, it was killing us for sure. Like so much like infighting. Like, yeah, it was a really, it was a really hard time.
1: <laughs> I think you're lucky <laughs> that you had that already established record label and you knew how to be your own boss, like to be able to walk away from that, that job. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people yeah. without that experience would probably try to stick it out and get depressed.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think so too. But like in the same respect, it also worked against me because I would see parts of the equation that weren't getting uh-huh. worked on. And I would take it on as my responsibility because someone had to do it. And it was like, we used to do these things called stock checks. Do you even know what uh-huh. Like, so every time a band was on tour, you get a tour market sheet of, you know, the tour dates. But then I would go in and I would pull up every record store in a 50 mile radius. And then I would call that record store and I'd get whatever person on the phone and say, how many copies of the Get Up Kids record do you have in stock? And they would put me on hold and they'd say, we have two. And I'd say, cool. They're playing there in two weeks. You need to order 10. And they would go, okay, we'll write it down. And then they would write it down. And then I would call them back the next week. And I'd say, hey, we talked a week ago. Did you order more records? And they'd say, yeah, we did. Or yeah, we didn't. And if they didn't, then I would send them a promo package of your record with a poster and stickers. And if the person seemed like they gave a shit about music, I would be like, what size shirt do you wear? Do you want a shirt? And I'd send them a shirt. And I was doing that on top of everything else. And people were like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, this is hand-to-hand combat at this point because what mattered back then was SoundScan. It was like, how many records did you sell in that market on that day? and the ga- it was like moneyball it was like how heavy can i weight these numbers so these bands can get bigger and i do feel like that that helped with the growth of the company but it was one of those unseen completely thankless was- jobs and i was just on the phone all the fucking time and it just was like crazy so i don't think crazy. i i think i may have intentionally like not paid
1: attention to sound scan because It felt like super corporate to me, you know, like it felt like very like we're all about sales and like these stores are worth more than these other stores. And I was just like, that's stupid.
2: It sucked, but that's how your guarantee went up. And it was like, when you make more money, everybody makes more money. And it was like, it's just how the game was played. But when I did go back to my own company, I was like, I'm not fucking doing sound scan. I'm not fucking with this at all. Like, because there's going to be a tipping point where it's not going to matter. And I don't want to run all the way up to the hill and get to the top. And then it's like, oh, by the way, we figured out this is kind of bullshit. And no one does it anymore. So yeah, it was a, a real interesting time.
1: Oh, man. So were you there during that period when they moved in the new office and they got all those giant portraits? Yes. Of all. Yes. Did anybody ever bring up that maybe that would make the people in the bands feel awkward <laughs> to walk into the office and unknowingly see a giant <laughs> picture of yourself.
2: No, because, <laughs> you know, the thought process behind things was ego related. And like, wouldn't you be psyched if you walked into your record label and there was a 20 foot portrait of your face on the wall? No, I felt horrible. <laughs> I always, my only, you know, thing that popped up with it was I was always, I would feel bad for the other members of the band that weren't. That's how I felt too. <laughs> so I was like, if it's a photo of Matt, how does Subtick feel? Like, that's not yeah. cool,
1: so. Oh, I can tell you how he felt. I heard about it all the fucking time in the van. Like, it's just like, I don't know. It was just like, we're, our band's a democracy and I, I'm just the one in yeah. with the microphone. Yeah,
2: no, I, that was my, my red flag was like, you can't, it has <laughs> to be the full band.
1: That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. We still have many more episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Museformation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.